When I was 10 years old, I was locked at the wrists with padlocks and chains, placed in a cloth bag that was then tied at the top, and left on the floor of my elementary school gymnasium to make my escape. It did not go well. The assignment at school had been simple. Research a famous figure in American history and create a display, a poster, showing everything that you learned that you'd then present at the school's fourth grade history day fair at the end of the year. So we had most of the year to read and study and create our display, and then we'd set them all up on tables in the school gym and invite our parents and grandparents and brothers and sisters to come in and appreciate our work on history day. Now, I had already been obsessed with magic for over a year, and this assignment seemed perfect. I would study Harry Houdini, obviously, the most famous magician in the history of the world. But you can't just do a poster about Houdini. I didn't want to create a school assignment like everyone else. I wanted to create an experience. So I made the poster. I wrote the biographical report. But mostly... I practiced, because my plan was to use this History Day presentation about Houdini to launch my own career as a great magician, my first public performance, and recreate Houdini's mailbag escape there for everyone to see. And like all escapes that end badly, the beginning had gone flawlessly. When History Day finally arrived, I stood in front of my Houdini project defiantly as the older brother of one of my classmates inspected the locks and chains and then bound them around my wrists. And I delivered a line I'd learned from Houdini. Ladies and gentlemen, I do not know if I will be successful this evening, but I promise that I will try my best. Before he pulled the bag over my head, tied it tightly shut, and everything began to go wrong. The secret to my escape, and I don't mind telling you this because it was a complete fucking disaster, the secret was that I'd hidden an extra key and a release for the drawstring into the hem of the bag. My mom had helped me sew the whole thing out of a bedsheet. So all I had to do was pull apart the hem, and then I'd have the key, and if I untied a knot there, the drawstring would have enough slack to slide open, and I could get out. But... During the performance, I was nervous, and I couldn't get the hem open. And when I finally did, I dropped the duplicate key down to the bottom of the bag, and for the life of me, I couldn't find it. And around me, I could hear the size of the crowd growing, because, and this is not an indictment of any of the other projects, I'm sure they were fascinating, but imagine for a moment that you're maybe a parent or an older sibling at the History Day Fair, wandering around an elementary school gymnasium looking at one display after another. There's Abraham Lincoln, there's Harriet Tubman, there's John D. Rockefeller. And then you turn into a new aisle, and there, in front of a display showcasing Houdini, the elusive American, you see a cloth bag about the size of a 10-year-old writhing around on the floor. You would stop to watch, too. So, What began as an audience of half a dozen had grown much larger, but I couldn't get out. And the only option for me was to, in a sort of half-whisper, half-shout, call out, Mom, I'm stuck. I need you to give me the key. And so my mom came over and slipped the original key through the tiny opening at the top of the bag. But the bag was tight and dark. We'd used a black bed sheet to make it. And the chains were wrapped in such a way that even with the key in my hand, I couldn't fit it into the lock. And the tension of the room is mounting and mounting because the crowd had kept growing. And now some of the other parents were worried about what was happening. 
So this is turning into something of a spectacle, and I am losing my mind with fear because I'm stuck. In desperation, I tried to pull my hands through the chains just to free myself with brute force, which only succeeded in cutting one of them on a sharp place on the chain. So now I'm bleeding and crying quietly, and I'm still stuck in the damn bag. And all of this is happening while the kids in my class and their parents and their grandparents and my parents and my teachers and my friends and my brother and my sister, everyone in my world is there to watch. And my hero, Houdini, is there on the poster I had made on the table behind me, literally staring down at me struggling below on the floor. And it only ended when I called again for help and my mom untied the sack and helped me unlock the rest of the chains, and the audience clapped in embarrassed support and shuffled away, and I went home and went to bed and lay there, awake, staring at the ceiling and thinking. Now, at the time, all of this just felt like a catastrophe, obviously, but in hindsight, that night, getting stuck in the stupid bag was one of the most important nights of my career, right at the beginning as a 10-year-old. A funny thing happens after such a decisive, public, humiliating failure. You discover that you can take it, that however bad it was, it's over, and it's okay, you're still here. This is an episode about confidence, creative confidence. We're going to talk about failure, we're going to talk about fear, and we're going to talk about a few practical ways to think about each of them as a magician and as an artist. You're listening to Everything But The Flame. My name is Nate Staniforth. Welcome to episode five. So then I started to be interested in these things that mystified people. There it is. That's the magic part. A classical trick of magic. And I knew right then and there that I was being called to be a magician. Thank you very much once again, everybody, for viewing in. We've all seen nervous magicians on stage. We've probably all been the nervous magician on stage at one point or another. The common advice is to practice, to get better at your craft. The thought is that if you acquire competence and then excellence and then mastery, confidence will follow. And just before we go on, this is great advice. It is absolutely true. You should know your material inside and out. And I'd add that if you can't do a sleight of hand sequence immediately after a workout at five in the morning or whatever, You're not there yet. Getting a thing to work under the relaxed conditions of a mid-afternoon practice session is great as a first step, but being able to do it reliably under stress is what actually matters. So as part of your practice routine, consider finding a way to stress test your magic, not because you'll ever actually need to be able to do it after a workout, but because knowing that you can knowing that you can do it flawlessly, even when you're sweating, even when you're out of breath, even when your hands are shaking, will not only make doing it in the pressure of a live performance feel easier, but will actually reduce the pressure of that live performance. And just one side note on this, this goes for setting up your show too. If your routines require setup or preparation before the performance, being able to do this quickly and under non-ideal conditions, in the stall of a restaurant, in the bathroom, or in an Uber on the way to the venue because your flight was delayed, 
This goes a long way toward clearing your head so you can think about the performance itself. Knowing that you are ready to kick in the door and give your best, no matter what external environmental challenges arise, this is a good place to start a conversation about confidence. But I think that conversation can only go so far. If you're feeling nervous on stage because you have underprepared, then go off and overprepare and see how that feels next time. But I think what's actually far more common than the magician who feels nervous on stage is the magician or the routine or the new idea that never makes it to the stage because of fear. Fear of criticism, fear of failure, fear of what everyone will say, or even just fear of the unknown. What can you do about that? Let's assume for a minute that the opposite of confidence is fear. So as a magician, what are you afraid of? Failure? Okay. Ridicule? Okay. Maybe that the audience won't like the show? But now the follow-up question. What happens to you as a result? What happens if you fail in front of the audience? What happens if they ridicule you? What happens if they don't like the show? And the answer, I would argue, is nothing. Nothing happens. They move on. Maybe once in a while, in the years that follow, they will enjoy the story of that magician they saw one time who wasn't very good. Wait, what happened? Something went wrong? What was the magician's name? I don't remember. Wait, wasn't that the same night we all went out to dinner at that great Italian place? They don't care. I remember almost all of the great shows I have ever seen and almost none of the bad ones. The bad ones just fade away. Here's where I'm going with this. The absolute silver bullet against the fear of failure as a magician is actual failure. If you can rack up a couple of spectacular disasters early on, they more or less inoculate you against the fear of failure. You try something, it doesn't work, you realize that you're okay, and then you feel like you can do anything because the specter of failure has lost all of its power. You've seen it already. If something goes wrong, you learn, you try again, and get better, and keep going. There's a great exercise called fear setting that I learned from the author Tim Ferriss. If you're interested, you can learn the entire exercise on his website. Just Google Tim Ferriss fear setting and I'm sure you'll find it. But the first three steps are particularly useful as a magician. Here's how it works. Let's say you're considering a particular course of action. Maybe you're writing a show that's more personal than anything you've done. Maybe you're a serious performer hoping to add a comedy routine. Maybe you've loved magic all your life, but have never given a performance and you're thinking about finding a way to share your work with an audience. This is a position I think all of us know. You want to make a thing, but in whatever language you use to hide it, you are afraid. What do you do? Here's the exercise. Three steps. Step one. Imagine the absolute nightmare scenario of this new course of action and look it straight in the face. You write the new show and perform it for an audience and what? What happens? What is the worst possible outcome? If my getting so completely stuck that my mom had to untie the bag and unlock me in front of everyone was the worst that performance could have possibly gone, 
And having thought about this for some time, I'm convinced that yes, yes, it was. Then what is your version of that kind of disaster as you think about this new thing you want to make? I don't mean moderately uncomfortable. I mean rock bottom, end of the world failure. See it clearly. Think it through. How bad could it get? That's step one. Step two. Even if this nightmare scenario comes true, what does that actually mean? What tangible, practical, appreciable damage would it do to you? And are there ways you could recover? The idea here is that while usually the perception of downside or risk in a new course of action seems large from the outside, when you actually stop to think about the real risk to you or your career or your reputation, it's actually very small. So they hate the show. What does that mean? Is it a bad review? Is it a couple of snarky replies in the comment section? What happens? And the third step now that you've considered this unlikely worst-case nightmare scenario, is to make a list of the benefits that would come from the more likely outcome, which is that your new project would turn out okay. Maybe not perfectly, maybe not terribly, just okay. For the moment, ignore both ends of the bell curve, the worst outcomes and the best outcomes, and make a list of the benefits of having this new creative project go pretty well. You write the new show and stage it at a festival. It doesn't sell out. In fact, it doesn't even get mentioned in the reviews. But the director of the theater company sees it and asks to workshop it with you for their new work series. Maybe you add a more personal routine to your comedy magic show. And while the thing with the toilet plunger and the duck still gets the biggest response from your audience, you can feel that your show now has some new texture and range, and you're excited to see what you can do next. The exercise is intended to help you see through the typical fear of failure by allowing you to compare the unlikely worst-case scenario against the more likely outcome of the thing being a moderate success. And there's always the possibility that it will be a spectacular victory. In this show, it's my job to present one idea each week for you to consider in your own work in magic. Here it is. As a magician, as an artist, as someone trying to do creative and maybe even innovative work, failure isn't failure. Not trying in the first place is failure. Fearlessness with the occasional disaster will lead to more interesting, more rewarding, and certainly more creative territory than unwavering, safe, tepid success. There may be a danger to breaking new ground, to heading off in your own creative direction. I'm not saying any of this is easy, but I'd argue that there's a danger to standing still too. It might be more comfortable in the moment, but it does make it hard to know what else you're capable of doing. In the last episode, I made the point that the magician never really gets to see the magic because we know the secret, which makes it hard and maybe even impossible to imagine how it feels to watch the trick from the perspective of the audience. Who doesn't? A few days ago, I received this question. Hi, Nate. First, 
I should say that I'm not a magician. I'm a painter and an artist, but I've been listening to your show and I had a question. In the last episode about creative vision, you talked about how a magician never actually gets to see the magic because the magician knows the secret. I think your line was that a magician sees the trick, but not the magic. And I wanted to ask you to talk a little more about the difference between the two. So my question is, how does the gap you're talking about between the point of view of the magician and that of the audience translate to an actual performance? Thank you very much for the question. I see it as a practical distinction, and it's important in two ways. First, the trick doesn't exist without the audience. The thing a magician creates is just an illusion. Without the audience, it's like a film projector without a screen or an audio signal without a speaker. Pick whichever metaphor works best for you. When a magician performs a trick, the trick is incomplete without the audience because a fundamental piece of the magic trick's makeup or construction, part of the structure of the effect of the magic trick, is a specific, particular absence of information on the part of the viewer. So without an audience, the magic trick not only doesn't work, but it, it doesn't really exist. But also, let's say as a magician, I want to make my card trick feel larger, more, quote, meaningful. One approach that magicians have taken in the past is, is to turn the card trick in a, into a metaphor. The cards are no longer just cards, but characters in some drama. The king is buried under the weight of his responsibilities, but still finds a way to come back to the top. I don't know, I'm just making this up. From the magician's perspective, the card trick is a weighty, significant allegory of higher meaning and implication. And cool, if you can pull it off, if you can bring that vision for your card trick to life in the spectator's mind and experience and imagination, great. But the allegory card trick performance only works if the spectator buys into the little fiction being enacted with the playing cards. Otherwise, the magician thinks one thing is happening, this universal story of character and drama, and the spectator thinks something else entirely is happening. In this case, the overburdening of a card trick with a narrative it can't convincingly support. And because the magic only becomes real in the spectator's mind, in the spectator's experience, if the magician sees the trick one way, but can't connect it to the experience of the audience, then, then the piece never really exists in the way the magician intends. If you have a question or a comment or something you'd like to add after today's episode, I'd love to hear it. Send me a, a direct message or even just a voice recording of the question on Instagram. I'm at Nate Staniforth. That's N-A-T-E-S-T-A-N-I-F-O-R-T-H and Instagram. Until next week, thanks very much for listening. More from me soon.